Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. This week on The Exchange, Matt McDermott is chatting to San Fran's Honey Sound System, a crew of four friends who run one of the US's best and most influential gay parties. Even if you've never been to one of their events, the name Honey Sound System might have been on your radar in 2015. They had a residency at Chicago's Smart Bar, they got their record label up and running again, and the group's Josh Cheon runs the excellent Dark Entries, which featured in our top labels of 2015 list. Perhaps most importantly though, they've been something of a blueprint for the flourishing network of underground gay parties that's recently formed across the US. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. An exchange with Honey Sound System is up next. This is sort of a rare resident advisor exchange in that often it's uh, an interviewer and one or two subjects, but we've got the whole Honey Sound System crew here. So maybe we should start with some introductions. Maybe we could start over here and just go around. I'm Robert, also um, Bezier. I'm Josh Chian. I'm Jason Kendig. I'm Jacob Sperber, aka Jackie House. And Jacob, you were sort of instrumental in the start of Honey Sound System. It was you and somebody else named Ken, if I understand that correctly. Do you want to speak a little bit about, you know, when you moved to San Francisco and a little bit about how this started? Sure. Um, well, I kind of got out of my home as soon as I possibly could, fled to the gay mecca at 17. It was around 2003. And I spent some time futzing around in college like you do, meeting lots of incredible musicians and artists and being involved in some cool scenes and through some house parties here and there. And slowly over time, found my way to the gay scene and uh, met Ken Woodard. We actually met in the Castro at a cafe called Cafe Floor, which is kind of a epicenter of conversation and sobriety and non-sobriety. And lots of people have worked there that you might know that have come through San Francisco over the years. And uh, we bonded on music and uh, design. And uh, Honey Sound System and its kind of beginnings was really about design project and kind of a concept about ways of changing what we were seeing around us, particularly in that neighborhood, but in the gay neighborhoods in San Francisco and became an audio audiovisual project to start. And then slowly the characters that are you'll be hearing on the microphone appeared and divinely became a part of what the project is we know today. So one of the things that you said early on was what was happening in the Castro just wasn't that exciting to you. And I assume it was maybe a bit of a circuit party type of feel. Like, does somebody want to talk about what you were observing in the gay scene, in the gay club scene prior to throwing your party, prior to envisioning what would become like an AV project to begin with, with Honey? I mean, it's it's kind of a gloss over in a way to say it was what the Castro was doing. I think for all of us, and we all have ways of speaking of it, um, there was an evolution of dance music to that point and of almost de-evolution of queer culture into that period, which was lots of shirtless guys on posters and a lot of top 40 hip hop invading nightclubs and a lot of old disco clubs becoming more straight because there wasn't an appreciation for what could happen in those spaces. And Jason, what were you observing in Detroit when you started to DJ? First of all, you started to play in like the late 90s, early 2000s in Detroit. And what sort of parties were you playing then? Were you also mainly playing gay parties at that point? Uh, well, my, my first residency was at a club called Motor. 
It was a weekly party that was being thrown by Adriel Thornton called Family. It was a Tuesday night weekly. And it was kind of the idea of trying to pull together like the gay scene, but also sort of like the underground um, because the rave scene had sort of started to evolve and the parties that were being shut down. And so it sort of transitioned into the nightclub scene and Motor was sort of created this space where the international touring DJs that were coming through were playing there regularly on the weekends. There was actually a pretty lengthy spoken word on uh, uh, Red Bull regarding that's history and its evolution and its ups and downs. But uh, for three years, this weekly party where uh, Derek Plesleko and I were the residents, and at one point it had extended to uh, Tad Mullenix, who was spinning drum and bass back then, and Lauren Flax were spinning Jungle in the back room, and Brian Gillespie was spinning hip-hop in the, the study, as it was known. That was definitely, like, the start. So I had some experiences DJing in some of the gay bars, but then this was definitely like playing for just like the party kids, I guess. And that led up to about 2000, um, we ended the weekly. And then um, I had another residency at a club called Temple uh, with Mike Servito. And that was an attempt to also do, have like another gay bar in the city of Ferndale that at the time had, you know, a brand new EAW Avalon sound system. So that was, I think that the club was probably short-lived, but that was around like 2001 or so. So I was playing underground parties. I was playing gay parties. There were some of the circuit parties that took place, but the ones in Detroit, they would always have uh, like a house room where they were playing the more underground music. So some circuit DJ would be playing in one room and then they'd have like more underground sounds in the other and I was would play that. So that was like the motorball experience. So Detroit already felt a little bit more diverse and musically advanced at that time or more wide open to an extent just because of the history? Well, definitely. I mean, there was definitely going to be like underground clubs. The predominant gay bars were definitely playing the top 40 house remixes. Um, There wasn't necessarily like an underground flavor. Occasionally you'd hear like a Masters at Work moment and that would be like, uh, you know, one of two or three good songs in the night, but you still went to Backstreet because it was Backstreet, or you still went to Menjo's because it was Menjo's and uh, the Gold Coast or, you know, even the Woodward or something. But at that time, you know, my musical tastes were leaning more towards, you know, the techno and the minimal techno that was starting to come out. And so there was that fantasy of what was taking place on the West Coast with um, like Sutek and um, Kit Clayton and Safety Scissors as well as the house sounds of like Hippie and Halo, Dano, that kind of like dubby house stuff was kind of big. And with, uh, you know, Mike Huckabee working at record time, like those are the types of records that were populating in the shop at the time. So it was kind of helping create this uh, idea of what California might have been like after visiting one of my best friends who had moved uh, to San Francisco and getting a taste of the California living and getting to like go see David Harness on a Tuesday night and just like, you know, amazing house music. And you're like, wow, this is like, you know, completely different than back home, just seeing like the support for that. Um, or even like meandering through the Castro and hearing like a naked music, Miguel Miggs track at the bar on Castro and being like, oh, wow, like a gay bar playing like actual like deep house. This is like, it was a novel type of experience. So that was sort of, what sparked the the drive to like switch things up. Josh, was it similarly mind-blowing for you, like coming to the Bay Area from rural Pennsylvania? Like I, I know that you've said that like SF is still for the freaks and even said that like San Francisco crowds tend to be more open-minded even than say New York crowds or something like that. Like, do you still have this sort of like idealization of what's happening there? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I moved from uh, Jersey City, which was kind of right next to New York, uh, like one subway stop away. And uh, so I grew up going to New York clubs my whole life um, and DJing in the East Village at like indie rock parties, mainly just kind of glam rock and like indie stuff and 80s post-punk. And then coming to San Francisco and kind of just falling into the disco revival, I guess, at that point, which I had kind of experienced in New York with the whole DFA and metro area. Those were all the people I would go see every week. They would have weekly parties in the meatpacking district. But it was, I didn't get a flavor for anything really gay in New York. Um, I wasn't really like fully out either. So I wasn't, 
I didn't feel like I could go to those clubs. So I'm sure there was a lot going on. I, I've seen and heard of there's a lot going on. But um, before I left New Jersey, I met Jeffrey Spire, who was playing tons of parties uh, in New York. And he played PS1 and was playing all Italo disco and Patrick Cowley songs and a lot of San Francisco high energy. And it really turned me on to that sound. And then when I visited like a week later after meeting him, I met all these other people and go to parties and hear this music. And I just kind of really got into it because it had so much of the melody from the eighties music that I grew up listening to like Depeche Mode and The Cure. But yet it was had this kind of stronger, more aggressive dance vibe to it. So it just kind of just came natural to the next thing I was into. Prior to that, you you had also interned for DFA at some point as well, correct? And some other yeah. labels in addition. Yeah, 2003, I was at Beggar's Banquet, who then purchased Matador. So I was at Matador for a while, like with all that, when Interpol was really big, it was actually earlier, but 2002. And um, Peaches was part of that too, because she was on Excel, which was also was that whole kind of like big indie moment for a minute. And then I went to DFA for about eight months before the Rapture had their album out and before LCD Sound System had their album out. So it was kind of when they were just doing the 12 inches um, and they would throw parties and I would help them sell merch at like LCD Sound System shows and just kind of be like the, the intern. But also getting you know introduced to all this amazing, lots of West Coast music like Terry Riley, early craft work, kind of kraut rock stuff that I wasn't into. And then I would play them all the indie music that I was getting into because I worked at a radio station at my college. And so I would play them all like the glass candy seven inches and all this really rare, weird, like DIY stuff, like a racerata. And they would be like, oh, wow, this is great. And they, you know, they kind of, it all kind of commingled a little bit. It's kind of interesting because at this point with dark entries, you've managed to put out a lot of these records. I'm sure you were discovering at the time, like Holland Tunnel Drive or uh, Dance Society or something like that. Like, when did you did this idea for a label start to germinate in your mind at that point? Yeah. I mean, buying records from all these little independent labels and also playing them out in clubs and then just collecting. I was always collecting all this stuff. And I always wanted to have a record store. That was always my dream is like, I want to have a record store. I love going record shopping. I love digging. Since I was like 14, I was buying vinyl. I don't know. I, I just, instead of having a record store, I just had a record label. I guess that's another way of getting the music out there and into people's hands. And since you put out three records a month, like pretty soon it'll be like its own store. Like, you know? Like yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so Robert, how'd you meet up with uh, Jacob in the early days of Honey Sound System? And when did you move to San Francisco? How did I meet you? I Playboy. was, well, Playboy. I was um, invited to DJ, become sort of a resident DJ for this drag queen, Juanita Moore. And, Jacob showed up to the first first set that I did, which was all um, Italo and um, disco and played a lot of Patrick Kelly, Los Angeles TF, Magical Potty. And a lot of people came up and were like, oh, is disco back? Is like, what's going on? Why are you playing this set? And so at that time, I was also sort of, I had my own club called Bailando. And it was kind of... It was on the Wednesday night in the Tenderloin. It was pretty seedy. Like a lot of times I would just play to an audience of just like one guy in a corner with crotchless shorts and just like flashing me all night for a good six months um, before I kind of called it quits. But, um, but I mean, towards the end, there were a lot of people who started showing up. Like Jacob was showing up. Ken Woodard was showing up. Like uh, that was kind of the first time I met uh, Damon Magic Touch. Damon Palermo and him and Daniel, they, they had a set as well at that club, but it was just still the three of us. But I basically moved to San Francisco in 2005, and I moved to SF because kind of the same um, situation as Josh. I came out pretty late in the game, and I thought if I moved to Silver Lake, and I lived there for like a year and a half, um, I thought, you know, I would, you know, mature faster, you know, being out of the closet, but it really wasn't the case because it was kind of like feeling my way around and I was, you know, 
I also really wanted to start playing all this music that I just kind of stumbled upon, you know, just with the talent and all that stuff. And um, that's also kind of how I met a lot of people around the world, like Love Fingers and Jeffrey's Fire, and they really inspired me to start my own thing. So I sort of just um, kind of took those feelings I had for DJing and wanting to start my own thing and took it to San Francisco, where I found that it was so much easier and people were just so much open to the stuff that I was doing. When you moved to Silver Lake, did you feel like you were moving there because it used to be kind of a gay stronghold? And when you arrived, you were like, uh, this neighborhood's already turned a little bit? Or like, was that what was going on? Or I mean, let's see, that was in 2003. And yeah, that was sort of the sense that I got that it was maybe a little like... A little more like off the beaten path in terms of gay culture because I mean because my friend we came out at the same time she would always take me to this lesbian club in West Hollywood and it was um, a club called here and I just when I first went I was like okay well you know now I know exactly what I have to do I have to come out I have to like you know be myself and just um, kind of thrive but you know, you sort of get disillusioned after going there three times, and it's like after the third time, and you're just like, um, wow, this really isn't for me. Like, the music is really awful, and I don't know how I can sustain this kind of lifestyle. So, so yeah, that's why I chose Silver Lake, but still, it just wasn't enough because it was just really, I felt really closed off in the beginning. It's kind of interesting that you mentioned Love Fingers because I, strangely enough, had him mentioned in another question of mine because even it's a bit obscure, but, you know, people might be familiar with his blog, like when he posted Mm -hmm. a track a day. And like one of the things that he said on that is that when he started to do that, like record collectors kind of came out of the woodwork Mm -hmm. and sort of developed an international network that still sustains him as a DJ and to an extent, a label head today. Like, Jacob, is this like something that you noticed when you started Honey Sound System? Because as I said, when you look back at like the initial podcast from like the late 2000s, like you were on it, like in terms of like the people who have become really famous gay DJs, whether underground or overground, like anyone from like Jeffrey Sapphire to Servito, like they, were all part of the crew from the beginning. Was it kind of stunning to you? Was there like an, if you build it, they will come kind of thing that happened? <laughs> I love that movie. Yeah. yeah like, uh, yeah, I think that a significant part of what we were doing was just being ourselves. And another significant part was being nerds. And in the beginning, I mean, now everyone's got cool and has leather jackets and an expensive jeans. But in the beginning, you know, everyone was on message boards or they were chatting, you know, of course, you know, referencing social media is like an eye roll now, but in those days it really was bringing people together in a way where specifically like a really niche place to be like disco music or techno or even just relating to the history of the past, a conversation about an artist and maybe his or her life and things about it that was fascinating that wasn't written or that not everyone could find books or even books that were out of print, some of which that were influential to us, it kind of created a network. And I think that what's important to remember about any music scene is that it starts with people who are just really excited to be around each other. And that was really what was happening. We didn't really know a lot of these people. We just were excited to share um, music and to support each other. There was no network for that. Love Fingers was doing a really influential and inspiring thing by taking risks He took a really huge risk by deciding that not only was he going to start his own record store, so to speak, but he was going to give everything away for free. And then he was also going to find music that a majority of people at the time were going to think sounded terrible. But for a lot of people were like, wow, these are tracks that I found over the years or that I thought no one would find as interesting as I did. But for us, it was about kind of unearthing an important part of queerness and its relationship to dance music. And especially, it was a really difficult time when we started. 
making a relationship to people who had been doing dance music in the 80s and even the 90s. Meth and the circuit scene did its damage. AIDS did its damage. You know, a lot of conversations that even have been talked about in RA podcasts. I mean, you know, you want to understand more if you're too young to know what we're talking about, then there's plenty of information for that online. But what's significant for Honey was us being so passionate about something that was separate from the sex and the drug drama. It was about the music. We were able to actually make connections with people who were kind of hibernating, relating to the kind of depressing parts of where all of that went. And we were able to kind of light a fire or blossom some excitement in them, people who were in their 60s or 70s uh, moving out of San Francisco because they didn't afford it anymore because, you know, the music had been lost in their lives. No one appreciated the high energy sound anymore and or the way that they were trying to integrate themselves back into music wasn't being appreciated because, you know, music had progressed so far and technology progressed so far. And we were really like, no, what you were doing in the beginning was really exciting. Let's share that. Or for people like our friends who are DJing, like we were like oh who cares if we don't have an audience let's like send us a mix and we'll put this online and you know the biggest compliment was years later some 22 year old kid that I met like just trying to go have a date with him he was like oh yeah I've been listening to your podcast since I was like in high school and I was like what but it was one of those things where you knew that even though we thought no one was listening and it looked ugly and, you know, we didn't necessarily have a branding package in the beginning. It found its way to the youth and it inspired them too. Before we move on, first of all, like there have been other people involved over the years and maybe you want to shout them out. And the other thing is like, how'd you arrive on this crew? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, this project is really dynamic. It's it is ebb and flowed, and I'm sure anyone who's in a band or in a col- collaborative project can relate to just how things change over time. And this crew, the the four that are on this podcast, you know, we I think we all are finding a certain level of success in the music industry for maybe the first or second time. And then the people that have been in and out of this project um, over the years have had different levels of success on their own. And uh, we're just appreciative because the family is so large, whether they were DJs um, or whether or not they were artists or designers. A lot of people have helped us get to where we're at and have shared a little piece of their history to make make us as strong as a foursome as we are today. And one of the names that keeps coming up is Patrick Cowley, obviously, and it, it seems like that is one of the threads that runs through, like, something that you've always all been able to agree on. And obviously, like, he's become a rather important figure with dark entries. And from what I understand, uh, it was a DJ named John Hodges who was moving out of San Francisco. I'm not sure who sort of headed up this digging expedition, but does somebody want to tell me a little bit about what happened there and like how you came across these unreleased recordings? It's, it's kind of a two-part story. Maybe Jacob wants to do the John Hedges at 440 story. Or... It was actually Cafe Floor. Um, so Cafe Floor is another, you know, brings itself up a couple times, you know, in our story. But the short story is that that was a place in the center of the Castro. A lot of the kind of retired gays and lesbians and extras lived on the hills above the Castro and they would, you know, do their like exercise walk or drive down into the Castro, go to the farmer's market or go to cafe floor and sit and like um, talk and hang out with friends or some of the DJs that didn't have places to play anymore who used to be legends. John actually met Ken Woodard, who was DJing there on a Sunday uh, behind the cakes, as we like to call it, because there's a rotating cake case. And they had a conversation and he was like talking about the old Die Energy days and was basically like, oh, well, if you like records, I'm getting rid of my entire collection. Hurry up, because I invited a bunch of DJs up to the house. So Ken told me and we went up there and uh, it was the old site of a lot of the recording for the 
label Megatone, which he spearheaded after a long line of people who were working on the label. And, and essentially, AIDS had its effect on how some of those labels started and then finished and who was in charge of them. And he kind of inherited maybe, I would say, the last part of Megatone. It was a forgotten opera for him. So he was inviting DJs that he'd known and whoever to come and pilfer his stacks, all his DJ resources. And we were in his basement and there was a ton of moldy gross records and we were searching it was like our, an unfinished basement so it was kind of yeah, like, like excavating and, and through the dirt yeah it was dirty and gross and uh we were going through obviously all the like djs had found all the new york records so we were kind of bummed about that but we looked down and there were crates with reels in them and uh shine some light on him. And sure enough, we were like, hey, um, what are you doing with these? They say Patrick Cowley on them. And he's like, oh, you can take them if you want. We're probably going to donate them or throw them out. And because at the time, I think, you know, and I, we say that not trying to make anyone like involved in that music feel like they were throwing it away. But in essence, it was a forgotten time for them. And they you know, they don't know that there potentially could be another audience. And we just so happened to be at the right place at the right time. And got a truck and got everything. And I was wash we were washing mold off of records for a month and Josh can start attesting to him getting deep into those recordings. Yeah, so what happened next, Josh? Well, I was doing work for Dark Entries at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley and they have all the facilities for tape transfer and to bake the tape. So I, I started taking batches of the tapes that had Patrick's handwriting and the years. And so I was bringing them and just doing these long digitizing sessions, listening and going through all the tapes and finding all this really esoteric, ambient kind of left field stuff. And it just kind of like all amassed onto like a hard drive and sat there for like a big portion. Of, yeah, for many years, this was in 2009 or eight, seven? Earlier than that. 2007? Yeah, 2007. 2007, eight. eight. Okay. So it sat there for a while. And then Ken uh, Woodard also took uh, two of the tapes to a different facility and had them transferred, made CDs. And one of the honey parties we had, uh, Stefan Goldman came out to DJ and uh, the turnout wasn't so great. And Ken gave him a copy of the CD telling him these were unreleased Patrick Cowley recordings. And uh, Stefan took it back to Berlin and got really excited and say, hey, I want to put this out on my label. Kenneth said, sure. The tapes were exchanged and the Catholic recording came out on CD in 2009, right? So that was 2009. And so we threw a party to celebrate the release here in San Francisco, inviting all of Patrick's friends. We, over the course of like six months, we conducted interviews with his sisters, his old roommates, his old lovers, his old bandmates. And uh, it just became this kind of like passion project for us to really tell the full story of who Patrick Cowley was and, you know, all the parts leading up to all of his, you know, disc, now disco classics. And uh, all these people came out of the woodwork and these two guys came up to us at the party and says, you know, like this material is great, but have you, have you found his porn soundtracks? And I, I said, what are you talking about? And he said, oh, he, yeah, he scored music to gay porns. So then I, you know, immediately go on the internet and like nothing comes up type in Patrick. At that point, nothing came up, Patrick Cowley, gay porn. But I somehow do some, I was also following these gay porn blogs because I really like all the vintage, like that whole aesthetic. So I have this one guy in New York, he had was, I emailed him and he was aware. He's like, oh yeah, Patrick Cowley's names come up in these films, the opening credits. So then I purchased the DVDs and this whole process of tracking down the director whose name appears like for a minute, but it's his fake alias. John Trainer is his porn name. And I decoded it to John Coletti who still living to this day, 71 years old in Los Angeles. It took me a while, but I found his phone number through like one of his tenants in Venice. And they gave me a cell phone, which he was really upset with. And then I called him and he, <laughs> he hung up the phone on me immediately and was like, no, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Very apprehensive about talking about the, his porn days. And then eventually I flew down to LA and convinced him to meet me because he wouldn't talk about it on the phone. And we had, we spent a weekend just talking and eventually he took me out to his storage facility in uh, Van Nuys. 
And we started digging and then I found tapes, more tapes, about 10 more reels of Patrick's porn soundtracks. The rest, as they say, is history. Um, it's kind of amazing. And I mean, it, it really gets to like a, this historical preservationist idea, obviously behind the label and, you know, a label that does both like new and old music and newer and older music, but also something that's becoming clear to me now speaking with you guys is like the party is about San Francisco dance music history as well. And maybe that's not completely clear to somebody listening to this in London or New York or something like that. But, you know, in the nineties, like the wicked parties were kind of legendary, like, but I'm sure that you're looking way further back than that. Like, does somebody want to talk to me a little bit about like what you see as the precedent for what you're doing or what you're trying to get back to? I mean, I can just say that like through the years that we've been doing this, it's not always about just being historic about the music, but it definitely has been about sort of reframing or recontextualizing music from various decades into a contemporary sense. So whether it's mixing in an old disco record or mixing in a classic house record, but we're still paying attention very much to what's coming out now and fitting that into the aesthetic. And we know we definitely have a penchant for queer artists. I think just because we're all gay, it kind of makes things feel inherently gay, but it's not like we're exclusively playing gay music from the past. So, Well, I noticed last night, like you're playing really, really modern club tracks, you know, for 20, 25 minutes, but like this disembodied diva, like sort of like comes in for a second, you know, for like five minutes or something. And then it's like, okay, getting serious again, like, a, which seems like maybe a little bit of like an apt metaphor of like the old and new, like what's going on and like sort of these callbacks that are happening when you guys TJ. Do you think that's fair? I think that's fair. But I also kind of feel with, I mean, in the realms of house music that they're even as, as modern as they are, they're still referencing the templates and the, the, all the predecessors, you know, they're not exactly like building a new wheel. So whether it's a new house track that's sampling an old disco record or just something that's completely new, it's still trying to evoke like, and, and trying to like provoke maybe a certain like energy on the dance floor. I think stylistically, you know, mentioning Wicked or mentioning any of the crews or mentioning the history, I mean, as a group, you know, it's one thing for us to have been doing our parties and doing our archive projects and labels, but to be playing together as many times as we have and creating this history together matches, you know, what you've seen a lot in dance music where the tracks that come through in the mixes and come through live are the ones that we have developed a relationship to, the samples and the bass lines and the ones that end up becoming, oh, this belongs here with our crowd right now or anywhere we go because we actually have a relationship to it whether or not it's re-releasing the music or having an emotional connection to a moment where we were all with that music somewhere you know that's what happens in terms of how we're defining the project as it goes along as opposed to just referencing the past Robert do you think that like the idea of like the DJ crew, like is that an underappreciated notion right now? Like is that in and of itself like something that doesn't happen enough? And how do you guys play when you play together? I mean, for me, the DJ crew is about connecting the dots. So we all kind of just showed up at the right time at the right place. We were watching Maurice Fulton. I mean, it's primarily straight underground vibe, but, you know, it was just the four of us, and instantly we all sort of noticed each other, but it was just like, you know, I didn't know if, you know, anything else was going to come out of it, but over time, it's just kind of, you know, the frequency in terms of, like, us seeing each other and being in the same spaces just became more apparent. I think it naturally just progressed to that, to that element of having a crew, and usually, I mean, over the history of other other crews, like it's always about you know shared love for a certain kind of music and also connecting the dots. In the part. <laughs> well, well, let's talk about like the course. Like, say you're booked as Honey Sound System. Is there somebody who always plays first? You know what? It, like, no, it's very holistic. Like we, it's just very like how we're feeling at the time. Like, you know, maybe like somebody has like a set in their head 
for you know a peak slot and it's like I really have to bang this out right now but it might be others who are just like you know I want to set the opening vibes because that in itself is a challenge you know that somebody wants to take on and so you know a lot of times we kind of toggle between like what kind of set that we want because I mean you can't just be a peak DJ and just you know expect to get all this attention for it. If you can be like, you know, really well versed in all different, you know, timelines throughout the night, then, you know, it makes you a much stronger and much more, um, you know, awesome DJ. <laughs> I think it's an interesting point to also say that emotions play a role too. Like we all spend so much time together and we've all been through so much together that sometimes it just comes down to like physically how we're feeling and being. I hate to say family because it's such an overused word, but to be have a bro mentality and be like, I know that you really want this tonight and we understand that there's something about this that's a spark for like your spirit, so go for it and we'll take a back seat tonight. And you know, in the early days of the weekly and maybe you can talk about where that was set initially and you know, the sort of venues that you cycled through. Um, but when did you know, like, okay, this is it, like, this is gonna work out, like, some early nights, like, some early memories, like, holy shit, like, this is going way better than I thought it would, or, like, when was the spark, like, very clear? Well, I have to say the first few attempts with the weekly at the Paradise Lounge, it was hard to gauge how well it would do. It was definitely a, a sleepy beginning. We'd had some events that uh, had gone really like more like kind of underground parties, one-off events that had gone pretty well and some, you know, okay. And then this opportunity to do a weekly on a Sunday night, which was kind of not a big night for making something happen, presented itself. And, you know, the, the drive to decorate every week sort of turned into its own thing. Like we have decorate it has to be something like we can't just half-ass it or even if it looks partially half-assed there was still a lot of effort to make it look half-assed so it was definitely like a burgeoning experience but then I don't know if there was I couldn't tell you the specific night when it was like I think it was yeah. our first pride at Paradise Lounge it was the first time where we're like wow we really packed this club out and it was even like our door guys really couldn't handle the volume of people coming in like I even had to step in and um, help you know control the flow a little bit but it was really an eye-opener because we kind of went into it thinking oh it's just going to be another night you know it's going to be like maybe a handful of people or but it was a flood and it really like showed us that there really is something happening that you know you know it's really valid for us to keep moving on this path. I think uh, for me, it's a little bit more abstract. Paradise was a great place for us to, it was literally ghosts. That place is still, to this day, is being shut down and renovated over and over and over. And it was one of those places where we could just make a ton of mistakes. And also it had this incredible history. And I think when I started realizing that what we were doing was more than just throwing a night or trying to be a DJ and be heard or, you know, have some fun with friends or, you know, hide a drug addiction, uh, was when these weird kind of magical things started happening. For example, there was uh, this very modest and s quiet person that would come to our party every Sunday. And it was, this is just really attractive, probably mid-20s, late-20s, would sit in this cocktail table in the corner of the room. And we had a lot of, like, fantastic personalities. There was a drag show that would end on Sundays and all the queens would come after midnight. So there was, like, it was a wild room and an easy room to, like, meet new friends. And we had super friendly staff. And so a lot of people would bubble in the room that normally wouldn't. But this one person would be here every week from the very beginning. And when I was always just fascinated, would go over, say hi, and this person would just not really like be comfortable enough to interact the way that other people were. And week after week, I would slowly see the spirit come out of this person. And I remember, I'll never forget it, coming through the threshold one night is this Amazonian woman, gorgeous, perfect makeup, long like black hair, 
you know, beautiful weave. And she is just screaming at the top of her lungs, yes, God. <laughs> and she walks into the room and does a twirl. And I run up and I was like, get it, girl. Like, what's going on? She's like, it's my birthday. And I look into her eyes and I realize it is that guy that had been sitting in the corner, hanging out, watching everything for months. And it turned out to be basically the goddess of honey, Miss J. And it was a moment for me to realize like, wow, actually we're, we're having an effect on people's lives and people in the neighborhood. And maybe we're filling a void here. And things like that started happening. People from the neighborhood, I'll never forget when the guy walked in with the Phoebe statue. We had put a big poster up outside of Paradise, and it was this plaster statue of what the venue used to be when the neighborhood was much more like leather focused. And it was one of the first leather clubs to have a leather shop. It was this two floor like complex, and it had awesome paintings and stuff. It was San Francisco's first leather bar. Oh, all right. There you go. And so for our Folsom party, we kind of like, we're putting all this iconography on the outside of the venue to turn it into Phoebe's again. And I actually had tried to find the guy who originally made this David statue that now you'll see on our 12 inches that are coming out um, on our label artwork. And uh, called him, asked him if he could find some. He said, we made so many of those, but I don't have one myself. And uh, we really wanted to have one of those statues for, for the night. And Sure enough, one Sunday, some guy early on comes in with this like giant plaster, gorgeous, untouched David, leather David. And he's like, I'll sell it to you guys for 600 bucks. And we were like, how about you just leave it here and we'll <laughs> sell it for you. But in the same respect, like things like that just happen on a weekly basis. And we knew that like something else was going on. Some odd energy being created. And obviously stories like that are like incredible validation, but at some point people like Prosumer, Akim and, you know, Optimo are coming in and are they ever like, what the fuck are you guys doing? Like Sunday night, like how did you guys manage to create this? It's like, what was their reaction? Because it obviously became like, even though at times it was in pretty small venues, it became like a favorite place for like these amazing DJs to play. Like, did you begin to notice that at some point as well? Well, I mean, I say after we were at Paradise Lounge for a bit and that, you know, through one of its reincarnations ended up closing and we were looking for a new venue and you, Jacob, found through some other contact, maybe Marky? It was Mark, yeah. The Holy Cow, which happened to be two doors down. So that, you know, we were all skeptical because the Holy Cow didn't necessarily have the best reputation as far as a place to go dancing. It's the coyote ugly of San Francisco. <laughs> Basically. If you can picture like a sparkly bar with like girls dancing on it and their turn in the spotlight. But little did we know at the time is that this actually was the original location of the stud before the stud relocated to uh, its current home. So it, you know, speaking of ghosts earlier, it had its own deep disco history, whether it was uh, Sylvester performing there or... Uh, Susie and the Banshees. Susie and the Banshees. Etta James. Etta James. So that move to this new spot, only kind of, we kept noticing just like the increase in, in people coming to check it out. And because the club had its own history of being like a proper dance floor, it had a proper booth built into the side wall. So instead of having the DJ on a stage, like being featured and spotlighted, it was more like the DJ was off to the side who could see the room, but the flow of dancers on the floor was weren't necessarily fixated on the DJ. They were just mingling and, you know, writhing amongst themselves. So that kind of created this like extra fun party vibe. And, you know, when it was packed enough and people were like filtering out to the patio, which was another amazing feature of the place, there was just really great flow to the room and decent sound. You know, I think that like maybe, you know, with like Steffi, when she first rolled in, she was like, oh, this isn't a club, it's a bar, you know? <laughs> but then, but then like plays and you see like the room fill up and it's like people that are just like living you're just going for it, you know, you like, it creates this like really fun energy. And I think that that, you know, kind of sparked, especially for these DJs that are like DJs, DJs that are like get fulfilled by seeing so many people just like truly letting themselves go and free free. I think that kind of inspired them to like want to come back. 
So Yeah, and some of those DJs were getting off of a plane playing these massive mega clubs. And we, at the end of the night, we'd be all scared because we knew they played like some crazy club and like we couldn't compete with that. And the end of the night, they were smashed and we had to try to help them get back to where they were going. And they were always like, we had so much fun or that was so much fun. And they meant it because there was something just unique about what was happening in that space and the people that were coming out. So let's like speak about that concept a little bit. Like maybe this will appeal to people trying to throw their own parties or something like that. But like you guys play large venues at this point, the most famous clubs in the world. Like you guys are playing Panorama Bar, you know, a lot of you have already played places like this in the past. And, you know, you guys play things like Hot Mass in Pittsburgh, which is sort of, a 200-person max capacity club, like really, really vibey, small dance floor. I feel like with promoters, a lot of times they're like, all right, I got to throw a party. I need this huge warehouse and like I got to rent all this sound or something like that. And, you know, like, do you think that's important? Like, it's, it sounds like, you know, you've observed like sometimes a bar, like a little bar with the right people there can be better. Like, and do you still hold true to that even as you're like starting to really travel a lot as DJs and get recognized for all sorts of things like is intimate like sometimes a lot better i think intimate is always going to be a little more better <laughs> i mean even from our transitions from when we had to end the weekly to our like our one-off parties that we do in a larger venue it's still how to transform or attempt to transform the space to maybe make it feel like it's more intimate instead of being in a big cavernous room. Because the way that people flow through a room and engage with people is gonna be different if it's in a massive cavernous space versus like a more vibey, small, intimate venue. You know, it's like kind of makes it feel like a more personal experience. Especially if like your DJ setup isn't necessarily on like a huge stage and you're like looking down from above and like waving at them versus like you're in the thick of it with the people and it just kind of makes it feel like a proper party. So. And I guess you can pull little tricks too, like at the Icy Hot 28 hour party, you guys are like, all right, donuts and coffee at 9 a.m. Like make everybody feel... Uh, Bob's Donuts. Bob's Donuts. Shout Legendary Bob. San Francisco Bob's Donuts. <laughs> Oh, I also decorated that entire party, so. <laughs> Great job. <laughs> Robert, can you talk a little bit about the uh, Bezier project? Like when it, you seem to be like really on this sci-fi space tip right now and, you know, you guys all sort of own your own aesthetics, but can you talk about like when you started to pursue live sets and this sort of production? I mean, I grew up playing music probably since I was in fifth grade. I trained with like this jazz fusion musician for like four years, but then like I kind of got this panic like, oh, I'm not really gonna be successful with music. So I just cracked down on school and just like ended up going to UC Irvine as a English major. But over the time I was there, I was still working on music. I switched a lot of instruments over over the years. Like I started with the sax, then I went to play electric guitar. And I started this band, kind of like indie-ish band in like late 90s. And the process in which we were practicing, we, it was the first time I've ever used software to record myself. And it was kind of like a game changer for me because then after that, I started trying to build like a little studio for myself wherever I lived. And I even took, you know, some courses at college on how to like recording and all that stuff. But I basically watched this live video of Bjork performing with the band Plaid from Warp Records and um, LFO. And I was really amazed about their setup, like how they had a lot of different instruments, but it was just one or two people controlling all the equipment. And from there, I was, you know, dead set on trying to recreate that you know, for myself in my head. And so when I moved to SF, it really wasn't about DJing. Like that wasn't really what I wanted to do. I had a roommate who was like a progressive house DJ in college. And it was just kind of really not my, my cup of tea. Like I would go visit him at his clubs, but like a lot of times he would make me carry his record bag 
just so I could get in the club for free. But I really wasn't into that scene at all. So when I moved to SF, I really needed to figure out how to get my foot in the door. So DJing was part of it. But over time, like as I started to become more stable, I started accumulating more instruments so I could recreate those sets, those early Bjork live sets, so that I can do that one day and um, go back to sort of my roots of being a live musician when I was like in junior high and high school. And from there, I just sort of had, I guess, kind of a mobile studio setup because I had a, I had a studio in the Tenderloin where it was um, really sketchy, but like I got a lot of work done because it was really quiet and it was a really small room. But then I would move it back to my apartment because I actually had my first live show in, um, I'd say like 2011. And I really found that if I was going to be a live musician, trying to haul all that equipment into a studio and then trying to go back home really wasn't working for me. So I moved all my equipment back home so that I, you know, could practice. And over time, I, you know, had a lot of tracks accumulated so that it was just so much easier for me to start finishing off a lot of music. And I guess it just sort of culminated in these uh, releases for Josh on his record label. And Josh, you know, one of the things that Robert just said was like, you know, he had this paranoia at some point, like music is not going to work out as a career. Like I have to get a degree. And like, in a way, you've sort of had the opposite case. Like you were, I think you know where I'm going with this, but like, you know, you're a scientist and you were like, I want to work for a label or I want to do this label. But they almost viewed you as too professional at some point. And how have you dealt with that? And like, where, where do you see dark entries going six years in and with a pretty devoted, sizable following at this point? I enjoy what I do. And I like putting out all these records. Um, I wish I could do more. It's kind of something that I wish I could have like multiple offshoots and kind of run a few labels and just kind of get everything out because I have so much backed up. I know that isn't like the best for everyone or for wallets, but um, <laughs> it's something that I feel I'm, I somehow I'm just really good at getting all these artists and finding them and getting it out. But I still have my day job uh, three days a week. I work like I'm down to 60% at the uh, biology lab. I don't know. I think when I was at DFA and I, I was majoring in biology and kind of commuting into the city and doing my internship and you know, they were just like, you're crazy. What are you, what are you doing? Like, this is like a real career. You do not want to start a record label. Cause I think I actually was, I must've been talking about this because they were like, don't start a record label. You don't want to work for us. Like there's no future music's over, like Napster, all this stuff, like MP3s, it's, it's ending. They would talk me out of it and they wouldn't give me a job. Beggar's Banquet, Matador would not give me a job. They're just like, you're too smart, like science, blah, blah. And so I just kind of <laughs> stuck with science and had to find my own way of like managing the two worlds of, you know, science pays the bills and it's, I, I really enjoy what I do at the lab, but also music is what I'm really passionate about. So it's kind of always been about balancing those two. And it is, it is scary for me to take the leap into just art and make art the bread, whatever. I don't know the right the way we're saying it, but having the money come in, I, I don't want to put it into that, like the pressure of having to rely on the label, which is a very like artistic endeavor and like something I'm very passionate about, but to make it pay the bills is not, I haven't found a way to, I, I don't want it to cheapen like the label or something. I don't know if that makes sense. Sure. So I don't have, I don't even have an intern. So if any interns out there, <laughs> um, I do everything and I have a designer who does all the design, but I do all the packaging and distribution and the copy, the promo. Jackie House making the Wax debut yeah. this year as well. You want to talk a little bit about how that record came about? Yeah, uh, you know, uh, honestly inspired by my peers and seeing people who were taking a lot of risks to release music, even though they were in such experimental phases as artists in certain fields. I've been a visual artist most of my life and music kind of just creeped its way and demanded a lot of my attention and uh, I've been fumbling my way since since it came knocking on my door and uh, 
this release is really exciting for me because I've been putting out music. I've been working on music with lots of different people, Robert and Jason as well, and finally getting to a place to be able to lay my own claim and create my own identity is exciting. And also, you know, just the dream of having your record in someone else's bag. I can't wait to send records to my heroes and have them email me back and say, uh, I don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) Or uh, not enough key changes in this track. (laughs) But, you know, the other part about the record coming out is also uh, doing A&R for Honey, creating this network of music that we've created outside of just mixes and podcasts too. It was, it's exciting for all of us to finally be able to make our own statement on the wax, but also be able to push some of the stuff that we've been doing for so long to the forefront. It's the perfect time for that. You know, if you look, you know, people who are super fans of what we do know that we've been doing all sorts of interesting projects for a long time whether or not it's the butt mixtape or whether or not it's the first Brotherhood compilation or whether or not it's, you know, art exhibitions or archival projects. You know, we put out a lot of physical documents and it's been a bit scattered because we enjoy creating a paper trail that someone has to find as opposed to a stack that you can just get handed over over counter. And now we're just legitimizing a bit, you know, we're, we're ready to make it be a little bit easier and, and actually use some of the audience that we have to benefit some people that we love and know deserve it. And Jason, is your, you've done edits and some production is your primary sort of outlet still DJing at this point? DJing is definitely like still a passion. I definitely like really, really enjoy it. Um, I delve into production stuff at home mostly just for personal enjoyment you know it's that you know creating the sound design and making grooves and just you know vibing out for that but then there's the dj mentality it's like you just want to switch it up and how to change that so kind of move on to the next project you're like i'm done with this moment and i think i have my own personal insecurities with my own like skill set when it comes to production so there's definitely like a hesitation for trying to to share it you know you're it's like wearing your heart on your sleeve you know you're putting yourself out and for people to either enjoy or to judge for better or for worse so i find with like with djing you know you can you know your moods can change you don't have to stay committed to anything specific or identify yourself like oh i'm only this because it'd be kind of weird to like start limiting yourself versus um, some artists like they've like created a sound and they kind of get pigeonholed into like what that expectation is. Sometimes they, you like seeing someone, how they grow. And sometimes you're like, oh, I only liked the first couple of releases and then it all went to shit, you know, or any, any number of things. So, or you can be, see how someone just gets better and better. But through all the years, DJing has definitely like been the, the forefront and I feel fortunate in the last few years I've been able to just completely support myself just doing you know having music be like the life and it's kind of a, it was a scary jump you know leaving uh, the day job and just relying on that and as Josh was saying you know you're like it doesn't cheapen it by by it being like what you do but you know you don't ever you know want to feel like you're in a position where you're like you're hustling and like desperate for it or like trying to like push yourself on them because you like need that to get by versus like, oh, you know, this is, I'm sustaining myself elsewhere with something else that interests me. But like, then, you know, I, I still love this. So I still get to share it. So. One of the flyers for one of the parties with uh, matrix man, who's also on the flip of the Jackie house record. He has a remix on that record. It was a really hilarious flyer that sort of spoke to what's going on in San Francisco right now uh, that took on the form of a fictitious for rent ad. You guys were renting out bathroom stall efficiencies. I think the uh, DJ booth was being offered up for 6,500 a month. So like San Francisco is thought of to be patently unaffordable right now like is there still room for the freaks and you know this like vibrant artistic community that you reference and push forwards well just for the record i was drinking a lot of coffee when that concept came 
to be born. Didn't necessarily go through all the members for approval, but uh, if you want one of those handouts, I'll send you one. Uh, you know, this question comes up a lot. Frankly, it's kind of getting boring in general for a lot of people because I think, you know, we have the pleasure of being able to visit a lot of cities as a part of what we're doing, um, more than some people, you know. And if you travel a lot right now, especially if you go back to the same city, I can't attest to much of what's happening in the world, but definitely in America, it's happening the same everywhere. There's like a uniform rise of the same kind of gentrification or disparate show of wealth and uh, investment in the cities. It's all becoming unaffordable. There are condos going in every parking lot. There's a expensive $4 coffee place going, replacing every $2 laundry place. So, you know, San Francisco is a hot topic right now because of technology, but it's always been a center for gold rushes. And you move there and you either didn't know that and you get shocked and you leave or you move that knowing that it's going gonna, it's gonna to do that. And I guess my last question, like you guys stopped doing the weekly in 2013, and obviously you get brought in to promote parties with everybody from like Ben UFO to Redhead just in the past couple months. But within that time as well, there are gay parties that are super astute musically that in some way maybe follow in what you guys laid out as, you know, people in their 20s and you know, sort of said, well, you can do this. There's no reason that we can't do this, that we can't, like, reclaim spaces and, like, do our own thing. There's no reason, like, you can't be, like, a gay music nerd that likes to party or something like that. Do you think that we're in the midst of, like, a sort of renaissance of the underground gay dance party in the U.S. and everywhere? Like, what we did was kind of a proof of concept because it's like, we kind of went into it thinking, oh, we're just gonna play music that we love. But as a result, I think what we've done is we've shown that we can do this, we can be confident with it, and with that, other people are a lot more confident about what they're doing, what they like, and their choices without you know feeling like they're gonna be judged. So I think what we're seeing right now is a lot of people being, you know, they're gaining this confidence to start their own scenes within their cities, and just saying, you know, we don't have to go to, like, the gay ghetto just to, like, you know, just to socialize. Like, we can create our own environment, you know, our own parlor rooms that we can hang out, you know, and find new friends and meet new people. But, you know, it's all through the experience of music that isn't very conventional and also has this effect of bringing t- people together. I think we've all been thinking about this a lot because there has been some particular attention paid on these buzzwords of gay underground scene and articles being written for, you know, clickbait. And I think what we uh, are experiencing is we really went in to legitimize a certain a part of what we wanted to see places and what we wanted to hear places and who we wanted to feel comfortable to be themselves in certain places. We made a conscious effort in how we were promoting our events and how we were putting ourselves out there to not over-sexualize. We were actually desexualizing in many ways, pulling shirtless guys off of the flyers and putting humor back into the conversation and making people work to understand what we were about and even sometimes making people work to even understand if we were queer. And that was our battle. And now we're kind of watching as the tides shift again in the same way that San Francisco has a gold rush every six years. There are these parts of the states and there's parts of the world that actually need that sexualization to happen. There needs to be a little sexual revolution. We're in San Francisco where the sexual revolution is just like always happening. You know, everyone's got four boyfriends and four girlfriends. But in some of these other places we're seeing and it's it's a bit odd I think for us to be like oh wait but you're you're doing anything we weren't doing but then you realize like oh actually that's exactly what needed to happen and it was kind of like the flip of where we're at and then those people can come to our party and like be around girls and straight guys and still have that sexual vibe and everyone can be hooking up and everyone can be enjoying music and there's now an exchange like oh well maybe if I want to go just to like a really weird sexy party I'll go to that party across the country 
Right on. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me. It's been uh, really amazing to speak with you. And thanks so much for the detailed history. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Settle down at night till you've been out on the streets for.